Hello and welcome to the Cardiology Nurse Forum podcast. My name is Charlie Spencer. I'm Alethea Bautista. And my name is Alec Taylor. Hello. So, Al, do you want to uh, tell us what the Cardiology Nurse Forum is all about? The Cardiology Nurse Forum Facebook group originally designed for cardiology nurses, but has opened up to anyone who's really working in the cardiology field. It's a nice safe haven for discussion about cases or interesting things in the literature. So we try and regularly post cases so that people can get involved with looking at interesting cases from our own practice and then hopefully other people can bring in their experiences as well. We look at ECG interpretation as well and go through things like that. So Ali, tell us what the podcast is and what that adds to the group. The podcast for this group has been designed to easily um, disseminate the information or the meetings and the discussions for those who are not always Um, keeping in touch on Facebook or online, which makes it easier for people to kind of keep in touch with us um, with regards to the discussions that we have in relation to several topics within cardiology and cardiology nursing. So this is our second podcast, which we plan to talk about these troponin algorithms, which is something we're all quite interested in, wasn't it, Ali? So this is a discussion in regards to the chest pain assessments and the roles of um, specialist nurses within the cardiology realm and how the chest pain assessment have evolved, pinning it down with what's current with regards to the heart score, the Tmax, the EDAX. We've had some discussions with regards to those and a few points with regards to the 01-hour, 02-hour or the previous 0 and 3-hour troponin testing. Thank you. Yeah, so we also had Hayley Sanders, a uh, cardiac nurse specialist from Worcester, and Helen Titu, a chest pain practitioner based in ED from Wigan, joining us on the discussion, which was great. As usual, the uh, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of individuals alone and do not represent any organisations for which they work or may represent or be affiliated with. Thank you, everybody, for coming. This is a meeting to discuss uh, accelerated troponin algorithms and how that might sort of fit in to various services. So to sort of split it up to sort of set the scene, we've got uh, a couple of planned presentations and then we just have an open discussion at the end. So Ali's going to set the scene for us about why there's a need potentially or a desire for accelerated troponin protocols and what the the background around it is. Um, then I'm going to talk about some of the evidence for some of these proposed accelerated protocols. Uh, and then Al's going to talk about uh, risk scores and how that might fit in. Excellent. So thank you, Charlie. I am Alethea, also known as Ali in the past, but you can still call me Ali. Um, anyway, so I was allocated the um, the situation of discussing about the history of chest pain assessment. So with regards to that, so I can only base on what we have experienced as nurses. Um, the pain is um, assessed in a PQRST method because it kind of links with how the ECG is. So P would be the pain, um, the provocation of the pain, um, the Q is the quality or what we know as the character, and the R is the radiation, the S is the severity, and the T is the timing or if there is any pattern. So in time, as we progress and as I progress, we've been thought how to Socrates it, or in a Filipino twang, it would be Socrates. That's how we say it in the Philippines. Or to to the more posh ones, it will be Socrates or Socrates. 
So um, this is the proper stratification of what pain is like, and that's applicable anywhere with regards to pain. And I apply that even in the front doors and in my outpatient clinics, and it still works. We evolve further in a way of you just don't focus on the pain of the patient. You you look into the patient as a whole, don't you? So um, you tend to look into, because we're all cardiac-based, we, we tend to focus on the other history of the patient. And that would have been, have they had a PND? Have they had an orthopnea? Have they had a pre-syncope or syncope or palpitations? Those are the things we add on to it. We tend to add the questions of how were you predisposing to this pain that admitted you now to, to today? Or how were you in the last few weeks with regards to your symptoms? Those are what we tend to add on to get a full picture on how they were. So in regards to um, A&E and the front doors, we've always been faced with challenges with regards to minimizing overcrowding in A&E. And that's been written in the past and that's been still studied now. And there's a lot of papers, especially in the last five years, with regards to um, accelerated diagnostic protocols or what we call as ADPs. Some call it as accelerated diagnostic pathways. And of course, we're all very familiar with our old friend called Timmy Risk Scoring. It's still useful nowadays, you know, um, but of course, the papers have shown that there's far more advanced and far more specific and sensitive kind of risk stratification techniques or ADPs with our patients who's presenting to emergency department. And with regards to that, and I'm sure the boys will clarify this later with regards to the statistics and all that. But I'm here to introduce how the other pathways or the ADPs are, like the heart scoring system, the T-MAX, and the EDAX, and there's also high stax So these are all ADPs designed to help our emergency um, department colleagues with regards to stratifying the pain of the patient, specifically the chest pain. And these are obviously trying to help them to optimize and be more time efficient in a way of managing safely these patients. There's also what they call the GRACE scoring system. And this is particularly not useful in a way on the front doors per se. Once you've graced a patient, it meant that you're diagnosing already of an ACS, monocute coronary syndrome. That's where it's helpful for. And with regards to that, that's why the ASC is trying to obviously have postulated this on their guidelines, that it is useful when you've got an ACS patient, if you're going to stratify them with the, with the recent guidelines of when you need to take them or are you urgently taking them to the cath lab or advising you to take them to the cath lab dependent on their scores. However, these scoring tools, scoring apps, are there to guide you but not to make a decision for you. Your clinical acumen with regards to your judgment, with regards to a patient's presentation and how they look like, should be the one that comes at top priority, just guided by those tools that will ho hopefully make you a safe decision for that patient. With regards to my current trust at the moment, which I'm going to be discussing slightly later, is I'm currently in a project with regards to um, trying to move them towards the zero and one hour troponin. And I've already encountered a few stumbling blocks there, but that will be discussed slightly later. Brilliant. Thanks, Lithia. That's um, uh, 
that that's fab and I, I think you encapsulated there what, what we feel in in cardiology isn't it which is you know history is key and that overall assessment of the patient is what helps you differentiate between non-cardiac or another pathology but we've got this juxtaposition isn't it where we're, we're, we're capable of doing that although it's not always it's it's not always straightforward sometimes it's challenging whereas A&E are faced with dealing with these all the time and there's no way we can expect everybody who's working in A&E seeing chest pain patients to be able to do the same as, uh, as uh, you know, specially trained cardiac practitioners. So it's finding that balance, isn't it, between where you're not spoon feeding someone, like you say, a risk score is a guide um, or a protocol is a guide. But at the same time, you're helping people to make those decisions who who are never going to be consultant cardiologists. Anyway, so I'm going to just briefly talk about the sort of existing evidence for zero one hour troponins. Uh, major caveat being that I did most of the research for this uh, when I was doing my uh, master's project in 2000. I think all the research for it was 2017. I submitted 2018. We're going to look at the bit of the background of high sensitivity troponins, the ESC zero one hour, the evidence for some of the accelerated protocols, uh, one specific meta-analysis, and then talk about some of the potential problems interpreting and, and implementing these kind of uh, accelerated diagnostic uh, protocols. But we've had high sensitivity essays for a little while now. I'm not sure exactly how many years, but probably five years, something like that, since they've been around. Uh, I'm only really going to focus on the two most common ones, although ironically, my trust is just moving to the next most common, which is the Siemens Tropi. Uh, but the, the the most common ones are the um, Architect Stat, uh, which is a, a troponin I by uh, Abbott and then the Excelsis is it I think it's pronounced um, troponin T which is the Roche essay now to be high sensitivity uh, that means they have to be able to detect levels in 50% of the population so you know how when it goes below the detection it will just give you a less than reading um, you need to be uh, doing that um, if for less than 50% of the population to be termed for any essay to be termed high sensitivity is so that you can then start looking at much lower levels. So implementing those has been demonstrated to uh, increase the diagnosis of MI um, and STEMI generally and with a reciprocal decrease in unstable angina diagnosis. So we're essentially reclassifying some of these patients. Now obviously that also means we get more false positives as well more people with other conditions with troponin leaks so your type 2 MIs and your uh, myocardial injury patterns and there's been quite a lot of evidence out there fairly early on that showed that very very low levels so we've always traditionally used the 99th percentile to to illustrate um, you know what's normal so what 99% of a healthy population would would have uh, that that's the, the sort of cutoff really for for disease but these have shown with these high sensitivity essays that you can look at much much lower levels and, and cutoffs and that can tell you different things so for example levels below the level of detection indicate not only a low risk of MI, which we'll come on to in the pathways, but also a low risk of all-cause mortality at one year. So these are suddenly sort of changing a little bit into potentially a little bit more general prognostic markers. You know, there's a little bit more you can say about it. 
So this, for anyone that can see it, is the ESC recommended algorithm. And um, I will post a slide of this alongside the podcast once we've done this, because you need to see it to get your head around it. Even when you see it, it's difficult to get your head around. And I think that's one of the um, things we'll be talking out in a bit. But basically, they've set out this zero one hour protocol where you've got three categories, rule out, rule in, and observe in the middle. And for the three major essays, including the Siemens, which I haven't included on this slide, they give various cutoffs for that. So for zero hours, if your first one is below the limit of detection, that's an instant rule out, with the one caveat being that the chest pain should have been less than three hours from the chest pain onset to the blood draw, which is a fairly significant caveat for some of our patients that do present early. But potentially those can be ruled out straight away. So those patients will only have one troponin. Now, if their result is in the observed zone, so for example, for the troponin T, that is going to be a troponin between five and 12 nanograms per liter, which is still both under the 99th percentile, and for troponin I, that's between two and five nanograms per liter, then you're gonna do a repeat sample at one hour. Now, you then look at the delta or the change between the zero one hour troponin, and if that change is less than three nanograms per liter for troponin T or less than two nanograms per liter for troponin I, those are also considered rule outs. So you combine those and rule out that group of patients. Then you've got a first troponin above 52 is an instant rule in. But again, I think we'll come on to probably needing some more assessment because the specificity is reasonably high, but not high enough to say that you can rely solely on that single troponin for that diagnosis. And then the other caveat is whether on those zero to one hours, if their change is more than five nanograms per litre for troponin T or six nanograms per litre for troponin I. So then again, if they've got this quite rapid change between the troponins, then again, they go into the rule in. Anybody else, so anybody with initial troponin, for example, for troponin T between 12 and 52 nanograms per litre goes into the observed category. Anybody with a rise at one hour that doesn't fit into that category, again, goes into the observed category. Now, in the observed, the guidelines go on to talk about the potential of other assessments. So you could do another troponin at three hours or possibly a later time period. Um, you could do some additional clinical assessment, things like serial ECGs, obviously to expect these people to be observed in a reasonable area that may have cardiac monitoring or other appropriate access. Uh, and the ESC does give quite a lot of credence to early echocardiography as well. So there's a variety of options there. Three trials relatively recently that have looked at implementing a zero one hour, all of them have used the troponin T and been in the last couple of years. They're ruling out much higher numbers than are reported in the literature. It was sort of 50-55% for a zero one hour here, it's up to 72%. And really their primary outcome is their ED length of stay. And all of them showed that they did reduce their length of stay. So from here, a median of 5.3 from 6.4 hours. In another study, 3.2 down from 5.3. 
another one that they got a very good reduced length of stay to 2.5 hours, but they didn't clearly identify the comparator. Now, the nice most recent guidelines, they actually cover a, a much wider raft of these new high sensitivity essays and actually accept quite a few more. And they talk about a wide range of, of potential algorithms as well. Previously, they talked about the limit of detection, which are these very low values and said if you combine the limit of detection with a low score like Timmy, for example, then you could safely rule those people out. But that's talking about quite small numbers of the population, whereas they're now sort of saying, you know, you could use a zero one hour or a zero three or a zero two. And, and there's quite a few options there. So it doesn't necessarily guide you so much to to any specific one. This was just a little summary side of some of the, the evidence for those. So, for example, like I say, there's really good evidence for the limited detection, particularly for the Abbott troponin I, 100% sensitivity with reasonable confidence intervals. But we're talking about only 17% of our average chest pain cohort. Um, coming to A&E. There was a higher uh, threshold uh, suggested, originally dubbed high stakes, I think, uh, by Shah Atel, um, which rules out a much more impressive 61% of people, but that was at five nanograms per litre. Now, that was 98.9% sensitivity, but it came out much lower in other studies, 97.1. And when you talk to most clinicians, I think really they're looking for that 99%, you know, less than 1% miss rate. Although there are some other sources that suggest that the risk of over-investigation may outweigh the benefits if the uh, sensitivity is more than 98% or the probability of a disease is less than 2%. So then we've got the zero one hour for troponin I. That rules out 51%, so still quite a high number. And that had a 98.8% sensitivity. Then troponin T, I've got their limit of detection. Now that rules out a, a lot more than troponin I, uh, around 30%, 27% in one study, 32% in the other study here. And with 98 and 97.8% sensitivity respectively. So again, you, the basic principle is the more inclusive these tools are, the more patients they include, the less sensitive they get, which kind of follows really. Then there's zero one hour with the troponin T, that again in two different studies, 60 and 55%. And reaching pretty good, originally 99.8, another one 98.4% uh, sensitivity. So again, it's for clinicians and organizations to decide what is an acceptable level of risk in terms of miss rate. This is a meta-analysis that came out in 2020, which applies all of these things together. And, and one of the issues I found with a, a lot of the things is actually to big studies like the APACE here, it was a big study looking at cardiac assessment and they include a lot of the same patients so you'll find multiple studies looking at a different essay or a slightly different protocol but actually it's all based on the same studies so that means if you've got a couple of outlying patients in those studies where you've got uh, you know outlying results then they're far far more likely to be repeated so this is quite good because in this meta-analysis they've just taken those patients separately. They're not duplicating patients that may have been in some of these others. Some of these include derivation cohorts. So those are the cohorts from which they've 
derived the the rule that they're going to apply in terms of the troponin cutoff. So unsurprisingly, those are the most sensitive, um, 100% sensitivity or thereabouts. Now, when you look at all of the troponin T trials for zero one hour algorithm, this is your pooled hazard ratio uh, is 0.984 with pretty tight confidence intervals. So again, really, we've got that sort of potentially 2% miss rate. Then the troponin I, when you pull all of those, very, very similar, 0.98. So the problems I've got, as I say, this data is from diagnostic observational trials. There are some derivation and overlapping cohorts. Um, there's reduced sensitivity in early presenters. It depends on what you're looking at. So the ones that are less than three hours uh, or less than two hours, I think really the evidence would suggest that troponin I rises a little bit quicker. So therefore, the ESC is still saying less than three hours, we shouldn't apply these rules, but there may be an argument to say that with troponin I, you could apply them in um, those of, of more than two hours, so um, rather than less than three. Um, there's a widespread exclusion of patients with ECG changes, kidney disease, other symptoms such as short of breath, which I believe limits generalizability because you might write a protocol that says you only do this for patients with chest pain, but in the real world, of course, people are going to have unusual ECGs, they're going to request a troponin. I don't think we can rely on the, the same standard of ECG interpretation that you're going to see in trials and you're going to use to exclude patients from a trial on the shop floor in your average A&E department. Similarly, patients with chronic kidney disease or other conditions that causes troponin elevations, many of them are not going to be suitable for these, but you still want to know that it would work for them if they did not have unrecordable troponin. So it doesn't quite fit our whole cohort that we're going to see and probably no study group is. So there's very low event rates in the rule out group, which makes the results very sensitive to variation in the inclusion and exclusion criteria, the reference standards and the primary outcomes. And a couple of examples, the Shah et al study that said a less than five nanograms per litre for troponin I was sufficient and quite sensitive. Their reference standard was a standard troponin. So now we already know that that will diagnose less MIs than the high sensitivity. So it's quite a questionable reference standard and is going to affect the event rate and the sensitivity. Although if you were a site that was looking to move from a standard to a high sensitivity troponin, it may be more relevant to you. Also in study by Bodinghaus, I probably butchered that name, 2017, type 2 and MI were uh, uh, not in their primary endpoint, but they were clear included because they had a lovely breakdown of, of individual cases, their false negative cases. And um, they were definitely in there because there were patients that had no change in their troponin and didn't have cardiac investigations or final diagnosis of MI. So this accounted for 10 out of the 13 false negative cases. So you can see if there's only 13 false negatives and 10 of them are questionable, it massively swings your results. Now, in terms of implementation, from the way I see it, uh, zero one hour, it's relatively complex because some of our patients are going to have one troponin, some of them are going to have two, and some of them are going to have three. To make this valid, you'd have to take that second troponin at one hour. So there's issues around training and error with that. Your local essay accuracy and reporting limits it may vary compared to the studies that they're based on. Each site should be able to report their own individual accuracy 
data and then there's delays in taking processing and reporting samples so if it's getting close to an hour for a sample to be processed and reported by the pathology lab how on earth are you going to make a decision on whether to take a one-hour sample? So and my view is you'd probably have to take the one-hour sample for everybody. Uh, and that then obviously means you're going to overburden the lab even more because you can have even more samples than you had before. So there's no guarantee your early rule-out cohort will actually translate into increased A&E discharges or shorter lengths of stay. And your A&E clinicians may need support or follow-up options to be able to confidently discharge the patients because if they're used to just referring them on to acute medicine who then make the decision or to cardiology to make the decision that's a hard habit to break and requires a different approach and in overloaded departments may not be reasonable to expect them to take on a lot more clinical assessment for a large group of patients. And then the other, the big one for me is how do we identify unstable angina in these low risk cohorts and query use of a risk score which will bring us on to ours. So to summarise, low levels of high sensitivity troponin indicate low risk of MI and adverse events. Zero one hour algorithms are recommended first line now by ESC and are endorsed by um, NICE. Uh, there's good evidence on balance, but it falls short of this sort of arbitrary accepted 1% miss rate, so 99% sensitivity, and there's many p potential challenges to implementation. Modest improvements in length of stay in the literature, and the best approach to integrate into pathways on identify unstable angina cases in low risk cohorts is unclear. Um, and that's the real thing that I think for those of us in cardiology we worry about are they going to miss these unstable angina? If they're going to do a super rapid protocol that rules people out very, very quickly and clears people out, which is great because then we can focus on the high risk people, how are we going to be satisfied that we're not missing patients? And then there's another question of it. Does it really matter in this day and age if, if we're reclassifying a lot of unstable angina as uh, MIs? And I'll hand over to Al. Uh, yeah, that was really interesting. Nice one. So as Charlie said, I'm going to talk about risk scores. So there are troponin algorithms that we've been using. We, in my trust, used to use a zero and three hour one. Um, and now, of course, there's a, a strong level of evidence for a zero and one hour. But alongside those, we're using risk scores. And certainly in my practice, we've been doing that for a long time. We're using objective tools to try and uh, better risk stratify these patients. So I'm going to talk about traditionally what we used to use and then coming into sort of more popular ones now. Um, so these tools need to identify patients who need further workup and those high risk patients. But almost most importantly now in the literature is who can be safely discharged and who are those low risk patients that can be safely discharged. So tools usually break break people down into low, intermediate and high risk. And I wanted to talk about phrases that are used in the evidence base for risk scores, but they've all sort of been said, so I'll quickly go over them. Um, so negative predictive values, how I've been looking at it, Charlie talks a lot about sensitivity. So negative predictive value is probability that people with a negative screening test result indeed do not have the condition of interest, but it's tied nicely in with sensitivity almost, but sensitivity talks less about prevalence of the condition. This miss rate is interesting. So um, in probably the last slide of Charlie's, it talked about a 1% miss rate. So about 20 years ago, the acceptable miss rate um, was about 2 to 4%. 
two to four, not 24, two to four. They weren't barbaric. Um, and that was in a study in 2000. Um, but most recently, and I think you pronounce it Than, there's a chap called Martin Than, who um, uh, surveyed lots of uh, clinicians in America and Australasia about what they would accept as a miss rate. And they did that in medical conferences and and ED shop floors, and they all sort of came to 1%. That was the sort of largest um, prevailing figure, 1%. Probably unsurprisingly, a lot of the Americans were, were looking at 0.5% as a, an acceptable miss rate. So since then, tools sort of look for that as a, as a limit of, um, of performance, really. So miss rate goes hand in hand with negative predictive value. What makes a good a risk score? Definitely one which is easy to use, one that identifies a large proportion of low-risk patients, and then with that, those large group of low-risk patients have a low missed MACE rate or missed rate, and also a short stay in ED. Um, so lots of things that good tools should look for. So back in the day, we used to use the TIMI score, so, so seven variables, age greater than 65, a few risk factors, use of aspirin in the last seven days, known coronary disease, two anginal events, SC segment deviation, and elevated cardiac biomarkers. So the TIMI score, along with GRACE, almost like its um, good-looking cousin, were all sort of done for ACS patients and prognostic sort of tools initially of how we should treat these patients um, and who needs sort of aggressive therapies. In the ED, not so useful, and certainly the literature fits with that in the studies. So if you think about what the TIMI score wants, it wants an ischemic ECG for a higher risk, it wants known coronary disease, and then TNIs, and then your risk score goes up. But certainly with that, you might not get a large proportion of low-risk patients because the majority of people might not have those few things wrong with them. Performed poorly in the ED population, Timmy, um, and Grace as well, um, compared to other risk scores like Heart and Timmy also, it doesn't perform so great um, in undifferentiated, undifferentiated chest pain patients. But certainly it has its use in ACS patients and the ESC guidelines suggest using it when you've got ACS patients and how to time and offer therapies. So I'm not suggesting that, just in these ED patients. Where do we go to from here then? So there's lots of tools out there. I'm gonna list off a few that I've never really heard of, but when I did some studying a few years ago for a, a dissertation, um, you get friendly with these. So there's the ASPECT, so the Asia Pacific Evaluation of Chest Pain Trial, the ADAPT, the NACAPUR, uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, but the North American chest pain rule. And then um, the one that I like is the heart score and then also the heart pathway. So we've been using the heart score and I'll probably talk about that one first. So the heart score was originally conceived um, by six backs and Kaida in 2008 up in those lovely uh, European countries of Scandinavia maybe. Um, so the original study was a retrospective study. It looked at about 122 patients, but it found that um, if people had a heart score of zero to three, they had a 2.6% 2, 2 chance of MACE. Now, the heart score is based on your history, uh, your ECG, your age, your risk factors, and then troponin. Um, and you score zero, one, and two in each of these at different aspects. It's been validated since and better numbers have come up. So Van Den Berg and Body in 2017 did a systematic review of the heart score, which um, had nine studies between 2008 
of the birth of this risk score in 2014. Three studies of those nine actually had high sensitivity troponin use in them. Collectively, 36.6% of patients, of just over 4,000 patients, were highlighted as low risk, so a a good proportion of patients. This group had a 1.6% risk of MACE, so still quite high on that. So to combat that, there's been the use of high sensitivity troponins. Now, in that systematic review, they can see that only a few studies used high sensitivity troponin. Um, So since then, there's been development of other sort of ways of playing the game. So Mala in 2011 devised the heart pathway, which um, uses serial troponins, so zero and three hour. And in 2015, did a randomized trial so your two arms were one was usual care, which was uh, at the discretion of care providers. Uh, so a bit of a get out, but they had to follow the guidelines. And it was the American guidelines at that time, uh, serial biomarkers, but they didn't say at what time frame they used. And then objective cardiac testing prior to discharge. And then the other arm was the heart score. So off the heart score, you're scoring. And then the troponins at zero and three hours. The results in terms of the low-risk patients, there was a a few more patients identified than the original heart score. So 39.7% were identified for early discharge and they had no MACE at 30 days. So quite good results. But I know um, in Asia, they looked at one troponin, so one high sensitivity troponin and the heart score. There was a, it was a small study. They only identified about 6.8% of patients as low risk, and they had 1.1% MACE, um, even with one high sensitivity troponin with a low heart score. That low heart score was zero to two, so it wasn't three like traditionally is used, but that one MACE was PCI, so that patient with unstable angina. So there's other risk scores in the UK. There's lots of talk about using one troponin, high sensitivity troponin, and how we can incorporate that either in the heart score or with uh, another risk score. And I know that um, certainly in the north, uh, they use a risk score called TMAX um, that I haven't really had much to deal with, but I know Rick Bodies invented it and it works quite well. We were certainly going to use it in our trust, but because we were changing from a 0 and 3 hour troponin pathway to a 0 and 1 hour, the thought of changing the risk score alongside that was a bit too much for our clinical lead. So we stuck with the heart score. Maybe, Helen, if you could have a chat about the team max score, maybe um, give a bit more information about you know the variables and, and what potentially you guys use there. So we've been involved, we used the heart score at Wigan ED up until probably two and a half, three years ago, and then did some work with um, Rick Body at Manchester um, with the TMAX, um, initially implementing it. We've got it on an Excel algorithm um, on our desktops. So we went over to the high sensitivity troponin probably two years so simultaneously to when we started using the TMAX and it's set up specific to the troponin assay we use which is um, troponin um, I and it's a Siemens assay and we did this we were looking at using the zero and three initially but opted to use zero and two hours for the rule out we do have the patients in the observation period but because they were in the observation period we chose to do zero and six so the majority of patients have two troponins either at zero and two hours or zero and six. Agreement in ED, if you have a six hour troponin, you get referred to medics and you're either managed in the 
the new same day emergency care, which is a seven day a week open from nine to 11. So we're quite lucky that we've got that facility and patients who are triaged and patients that are triaged in ISAT, um, immediate see and treat. We're quite fortunate they have their bloods or as they arrive and are triaged. And when they're seen by the clinician, often those bloods are available. If we deem them as being very low risk, as in pain-free, pain not really suggestive of cardiac, depending on the um, demand of the department, we'll move those patients to SDEC, same-day emergency care, and they've started using the TMAX. They've, they're finding it, they're able to risk stratify and possibly discharge those patients at sort of two or three hours and still referring to cardiology for outpatient testing. So we, we are sort of using it. We're learning how to use it. I do a lot of education saying that it's not, you know, it must be taken with your clinical assessment. That is key. It is not a uh, you know, a badge that you put on patient to say a number, what you're going to do a two hour or a six hour, it's got to be done. And if there's still any concerns, even though bloods are negative, we want them to refer and access cardiology um, help. So it's been a big sort of learning curve. Obviously, when we started implementing it, COVID came along and I was as part of the NICE committee, all excited to go to Manchester, then had to do it on a Zoom meeting similar to this and didn't get the full experience. We're now in the process of getting it implemented into our all scripts or electronic patient records. I'm not sure if you've got that, um, his it's called. It can be pulled through into the electronic records and then we can actually do 30-day reattendance and look, have we missed any patients has there been mace or any adverse events so that's in where we are at, at the moment the medics aren't so keen when we often get the patients referred to a six hour they're like oh why can't you do a two hour cardiologists they like us to do grace score but it has very little value so i sit in um sort of cardiology employed but sit in the camp of a and e i'm very fortunate and i can see both sides of the issues um, and just try and be supportive and uh, make sure that I can ensure follow-up testing if indicated. So I don't know if that's useful. That's the experience. I'm a lone worker at the moment. Um, I've sort of produced this role with my passion for chest pain and troponins. And I did a bit of work last year before COVID again with a Presto trial, which looked at paramedics using high sensitivity troponins at scene and then us doing a second sample to see is it possible that they can do point of care testing in the future to not actually bring the patients to hospital? So, and I assume TMAX was, it's on MD Calc. I thought it was nationally used, but I know that we've implemented it throughout most of the Northwest hospitals now in the Greater Manchester patch. Brilliant, Helen. Yeah, thank you. The thing that um, struck me about TMAX, it's really impressive how widely it's used. The things that, that sort of made me worry about it you know its usefulness and its implementation you know there's quite a lot of variables aren't there isn't there about like 10 15 variables in tmac no it's um i'm gonna try and reel them off it's um ecg <laughs> ecg compatible with ischemia crescendo angina um you put obviously put the date of birth and the demographics in is the patient visibly sweating are they hypotensive and the troponin so we key that all. You can find it on MD yeah. Calc. Put it in this, um, and then Rick has produced some something in the Excel background which calculates the percentage risk score. And then we'll either advise it will give us a low probability. Those are the ones we'd advise to do um, a 
two hour troponin and it's also stopped us giving unnecessary dual antiplatelet because it used to be everyone used to have clopidogrel aspirin and fondaparinex and then you know a couple of hours later they may be a GI bleed or something so we've cut yeah. down the use of inappropriate treatment we have some problems people assume that you know you don't give any treatment so if you have a high suspicion you should still mm. treat again yeah. it's just a decision aid it is not telling you what to do um, and that's one of the difficult obstacles that we need to try and get over it's not telling you this is what you must do it's sort of guiding you and especially when you've got junior doctors um, we only have senior um, consultants on till 10 o'clock, then it's registrars, a lot of locums. So it's just a, a supportive tool. All chest pains have to have consultants, senior sign off as well. Do you find that the, there's issues with compliance? Because, it, it, you know, previously I've seen certainly with Grace, when we tried to use Grace, um, it, it was very variably used. And I, 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 it seems to be in the evidence that anything that you need like um technology to enter you know something to calculate it for you um has like lower compliance or do you find that it's sort of been embedded very well i suppose you changed the essay at the same time didn't you so yeah i think for us um it's obviously got a combination of its uses to rule out so we can discharge it's also very difficult to make that decision to say patients are not cardiac pain so i think where you've got the overlap um, and it's probably sort of individual um, assessment that puts the data in. Ref you're trying to justify your referral to medics. So it's always very difficult to say this is not a cardiac pain. We can actually audit it regularly and give you know feedback and feed into Rick's sort of database so that we can further validate its usefulness and produce more meaningful um, sort of results. And going through an audit on coded outcomes of two and a half thousand patients for a year of attendances to look at whether those patients have had a reattendance with a similar episode. The unfortunate thing is because it's desktop based on a number of computers, it's only in Amy and in our SDEC at the moment so thank you it does use the first troponin result doesn't it to yes and then calculate the score yeah. so do you but you're not using because there are there are some papers done with that aren't there that would then discharge based on that single troponin result are you are you doing that as well and then intermediates going to the zero two hours or are they all having is the is the lowest denominator zero two hour if you like no i mean if patients have got a clear but we're very cautious what we teach some of our very uh, the junior doctors if a patient's had pain two days ago and the first troponin is less than three we will discharge mm. the patients we won't say we have to do a two-hour troponin so it's it's based on clinical history so if there's a clear sort of definitive of onset of symptoms we'll we'll use that but again you have to think if you miss a, an mi People are more worried than making the patient sometimes wait unnecessarily, possibly for a two hour troponin. At least you've completed that. Um, and by the time the patients are assessed and the bloods are back, they're due for that troponin. But we do discharge a proportion of patients on the single of troponin if there's a clear onset of chest pain, which I'm sure is used in a lot of areas. Or troponins have been done un unnecessarily and we wouldn't even put them down the Tmax pathway. Or we have patients with raised troponins that they put on the T-Max that haven't come in with anything so again yeah. it's, 
education and making sure it's used appropriately. Oh, I did have one question or comment for you. If I remember rightly, all that literature on risk scores, um, although we were talking about similar numbers in terms of miss rate, they tend to include revascularization or other like surrogates for unstable angina, whereas all the troponin only algorithms, they're just looking at death and MI. And you kind of think that there probably are other outcomes that are important to patients rather than, you know, kind of, if I say to people, you know, you, you're very unlikely to die in 30 days. Um, I, I'm not sure how, how reassuring that is, really. Um, <laughs> is that right, though, about outcomes? Yeah. And what, what are so, your thoughts um, on that? And I think for a few different trials and a few different risk scores, they use different wording for MACE. So they do all-cause death and um, you know, the deaf, morbid stuff. Uh, and they they can say sometimes, yeah, PCI for any reason, revascularization for any reason, or they've labeled, some have got unstable angina in there, if I remember correctly. But yeah, they, they definitely do specify PCI. Um, certainly that last sort of Asian study that looked at the modified heart score, the, their one patient just had PCI for, for a reason. So that was part of the MACE. Be interested in any of your thoughts as well, Hayley? I have gone well and truly into the world of rapid access chest pain clinic. So, and and outpatient cardioversion. So my trust, they're they're starting to come around to the idea. We're going to move, we're we're doing high sensitive troponins at zero and three hours. We're going to move over to hopefully an accelerated pathway. We're hoping at the minute towards December and we're going to go over to troponin I. But that's all in the pipelines. Thank you. Anyway, so I just showed a bit from the audit I did of my previous trust. And the difference from this, this was all comers that got a troponin. So this is different from all the trials because they obviously exclude a lot of people. So, for example, 15% of people, I could not identify any possible justifiable reason for having done a troponin. And, and that's taken into account a bunch of, you know, a vaguely abnormal ECG or yeah. um, having chest pain once or probably even breathlessness. And then looking at the, those that were less than troponin less than five and at 60% of people and then looking at various other parameters. So it's interesting that also the heart scores well adopted. Well, this was the heart score had been going for two years there. And of the entire cohort, 21% of people had them. Even if you had a 30 day event, type one MI or cardiac death, still only a third of them got a heart score. That was just to illustrate that these scores, even I think the heart score is very easy to use, even then that I don't think they're well adopted. I don't think they're well used. So it's a real challenge how you're going to get to do it. And then another thing that I did, and this was very, very speculative, is I synthesized the results because I was hoping, obviously, to be able to look at heart scores as outcomes. But I came to the conclusion that so few people had a heart score it really you couldn't draw many conclusions from them. So what I did was just from a manual chart review, take all of the parameters that would fit a heart score or a Timmy score. So of all of those, a heart score equal or less than three, um, which was the standard low risk, comprises 60% of the population, so quite a large number. And it misses no type 1 MIs or deaths. It missed four 
unstable anginas and a nine type two MIs. A heart score less than two performed even better and only missed one unstable angina. Timmy less than or equal to two, which I think was another potential low risk cutoff, was a large proportion, 72% of people, but there were bucket loads of missed events, including MIs. Timmy equal or less than one, which I think is the standard low risk cutoff, still missed an MI, an unstable angina, and a lot of type two MIs, myocardial injury. A Timmy score of zero, however, actually performed arguably as well as the heart score less than two. It's the same number of people, 38% of the population, and only a couple of events, which in this case are type 2 MI. And then I looked at Gestalt. So what you were talking about, Ali, I absolutely am sure that your Gestalt or clinical acumen would not miss this huge number of, of, of adverse events. Yep. But this, this is the reality. Now, this Gestalt was based on either people writing low risk or transferring them to a low risk area. I worked on the basis that if you send someone to CDU, you're assuming that they're low risk or you believe that they're low risk. And then of the patients that had a documented heart score, 26% of those were inaccurate including two cases with missed MIs that were wrongly classified as low risk. So that's just to put the other ball out there. If you're going to do a risk score, how are you going to ensure that it's accurate? Then what I did was I combined the cohort of patients with a troponin less than five and those sort of pre-specified um, other risk categories. And the interesting thing is in our lowest risk groups, the heart score of two and the or a TIMI of zero. That actually didn't really change their outcome. It reduced it from two events to one of the fix. So all we've done really with the less than five is reduce the size of the cohort. The cohort's very similar. So I think there were about 38% on the previous slide and they're 33% on this. But you can see how the interplay between the risk score and the troponin when you're using these novel cutoffs is different. So the ones that perform best on their own don't necessarily perform best when you combine them with a low cutoff. So here, for example, you could argue a Timmy of one or less perform outperforms the zero because it's ruling out 43% of people and it's missed one unstable angina, one type 2 MI. That's pretty favourable compared to the Timmy zero on its own, which ruled out 38% of people and missed the same number of events. But most interesting, I thought, was that the Gestalt or the low risk by clinical impression, which on its own performed worse than any of the risk scores, when combined with a troponin less than five, yielded a cohort of 35% with zero events of any kind. Now, obviously, this isn't a study, this is an audit, and there's loads of potential confounders and problems. But I thought that usefully illustrated what we assume about what is the best risk score and what is the best troponin pathway is not necessarily going to be the case when you put them together. And there's loads of questions about how you're going to do that. And that's where the strength of something like the TMAX that Helen talked to us about is because it's bespoke, it's designed for that. My issue with it is it's too prescriptive. And I think that you'll get less compliance with that than you will with a risk score like the heart score. Um, anyway, this was the pathway that I was looking at. We thought about risk scores. And I thought, actually, with all the evidence we've got, that's not what you need at the start when they come in. You could argue it's useful to triage them to different areas, but we're in a small DGH where we don't have lots of areas. So ours was 
patient presenting with chest pain is suggestive of acute coronary syndrome. Now, you could really stretch that to any condition suggestive of it. You do your ECG, you make your initial decision based on the ECG. So obviously, STEMIs are going to go off. ST depression or deep T-wave inversion in many leads suggestive of, of MI, you refer straight away to cardiology or out of hours, you, you talk to the, our interventional center and you really go straight down to the management pathway you still do your troponin algorithm but you start manage them as if they're an ACS by putting them in a monitored bed etc etc for anything else any other kind of t-wave pattern or ecg pattern your bundle branch blocks and things like that that you don't think are representing an acute event you go down to troponin and then you've got zero one and then a zero three similarly to some people have been talking about and helen said how they've modified those with a higher initial troponin score or higher risk straight to a six hour here we were going straight to a three hour if you had a troponin between 12 and 51 uh, nanograms per litre and then sticking with the existing 20% change because it's just simpler and what concerns me particularly is this group here say you've got a troponin of five the next troponin is 10 at one hour by the ESC algorithm you rule in for an MI but you've still not got a troponin result above the 99th percentile so you technically do not have a diagnosis of MI so I think that's when you're going to need a third troponin so I think quite a few of these will end up up with a third troponin or their second troponin delayed to three hours but if you can't get the result within one hour you're going to have to do that so i suspect almost everybody will get two troponins a standard if you're going to implement this and then a proportion of them will also get a third troponin but then if you came down and you were in rule out whether that's by a low change or however it was you would say that the mi has been excluded and you would then go on to your heart score now this is a modified heart score which takes away the troponin pathway again i took out the high risk ecg patterns because again those patients shouldn't be in here but with a modified heart score then you sort of say if it's three or less consider anything else and then discharge if it's four or more you've excluded everything else you can still discharge but consider cardiology follow-up so we were really going to use a modified heart score purely to guide the follow-up now uh, my consultants are very wary of this because they think it's going to lead to an increase in referrals i'm not so sure i think there may be a decrease it disincentivizes them to refer very low risk patients and it helps them recognize who who is very low risk but yeah anyway that's what we were looking at i think it's a really challenging area when you actually look to implement this stuff so none of these pathways none of these adps so whatever we do we try to instigate them we try to encourage to use them because at the moment our service is not 24 hours um it's not being used properly so hence the gestalt mode from what you found do miss things and a lot of it so um, with regards to that, that's what I'm trying to move them forward and that's what I'm trying to finalize. But catching on to the zero and one hour troponin, I guess you're right, Charlie, with regards to because of the overcrowding in ED and because of how we manage our patients, implementing the one hour blood extraction will be quite challenging, if not impossible, with patients in A&E that's been sat on chairs, on the corridors and trolleys, it's gonna be quite challenging. And I, I kind of realize that now myself, hence in my trust, um, I'm very lucky because we have a very good relationship between our ED acute medical consultants and our CAT or cardiac assessment teams. So within that three kind of areas, 
we have kind of agreed either zero one hour and they're testing a zero and two hour as well and marrying that with the heart scoring system. And that's where we're going to kind of wrap up, hopefully before I leave them. Yes, heart scoring system is great. The What the SE guidelines have suggested about the zero one hour or zero two hour is great, but it's trying to get them moving and trying to apply them in a very busy ED department because there's always going to be EDCs, the real chaos. Yeah, hopefully we can we can all meet again to, tr- to see and what we've got so far with regards to these types of projects because it's very very interesting. Yeah, it would it would be wonderful to hear you know people that have actually um, implemented these. So it's great to hear what what Helen was saying. Well, thank you very much Cheers. for uh, joining. It's, it's lovely, lovely having you around, you. people. Yeah, lovely to see